Welcome to Living Love, the radio broadcast ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Benton, Illinois. Our desire is to live love to God, to others, and the nations. We hope this week's broadcast will bless and encourage you. Now, let's dive into God's Word and see how we can live love today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shone into the darkness, and as many as received Him, received that light, received the Word, they had the ability to become children of God. Amen. Well, that's, that's how John begins his gospel in chapter 1. And in the end, he introduces us to this Word. And today we come to the passage where he tells us the name of the Word. The name is Jesus Christ. But he's also going to tell us some pretty important things about Jesus. In fact, as I look at the five verses we're going to read in just a moment, I've kind of come to the conclusion there's about seven or eight different sermons that really could come out of those five verses. I've settled on four sermons, and I'm going to preach them all this morning. <laughs> so I don't know if this gives you the ability to skip church for a while. I'm not sure. But I think maybe there are so many powerful concepts, but today I just want us to look at them and to see what they say. So beginning in John chapter 1, verse 14, the real introduction comes to its pinnacle, its climax of this first chapter, this prologue. And it is with that simple phrase in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Word who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God, who was a part of creation, the Word that is the source of life and light and, and a key to the family of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, the Baptist, bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Well, four sermons. Let me just give you the first one. The first one has to do with the word incarnation. Now, the word incarnation is in the text. The Latin word for carne Carne is meat, chili con carnes, chili with meat. Carnivorous teeth are for eating meat. The Greek word here for flesh is the word sarx. God became flesh, became meat. It's a very physical term. In fact, it's a, almost a shocking term. It's one that when Paul or John says this, people would have just almost been amazed. The Word was with God, fine. The Word was God, fine. The Word was the source of life, fine. The Word became sarks, became flesh. That would have got everybody's attention. 
When Paul talks later about the flesh, he uses it as that part of us that, that is not pleasing to God, that sinful nature that is a part of who all of us are. That's the flesh. And when we understand that the Word became flesh, that's an outrageous statement, but one that is absolutely critical for salvation. The measure of atonement begins in the idea that Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh. An incarnation that God entered into the world in flesh. Now, understand that that's also why there are two titles for Jesus. He has this dual personality. He is the Son of God, but He's the Son of Man. The Son of Man suggests that, yes, He was human in every aspect. In fact, John kind of lays to thing this idea of Gnosticism, that somehow in the first century they believed that Jesus was just a spirit. But this makes it very clear. And the Gospel of John nails down that Jesus came in the flesh. Paul says later on, if, if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, you are not a believer. You are outside of the grace of God. Jesus became flesh. Now, part of that is we understand from the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews that sin entered the world through a man, through flesh. That our sinful nature, the sinful nature that separates every one of us from God, is a part of our sinful fleshness. It's our human reality. And yet, that's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin so that he could be born into an earthly body and yet without that sinful nature. And then he needed to be God, God in flesh, so that he could live a sinless life in the world, in the flesh, and then die physically on the cross in order that there might be atonement for the sin that separates all of us from God. This is absolutely critical that he was God in flesh. The incarnation is one of the most significant words. If you're going to have a church and you call yourself Emmanuel, you need to understand that God with us in the flesh is absolutely critical. That the incarnation is a significant word. And when he makes this statement, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw him. In fact, in the gospel of John, as you read on farther, there are all kinds of stories about Jesus eating about Jesus physically touching people. And later on, you'll get to that wonderful story that only John tells us about Thomas, who says, hey, I can't believe unless I can see the nail prints in the physical hands. And I put my hand in his physical side, and Jesus presents himself. And even in his glorified state after the resurrection, he is still in a physical body. There's something powerful about the doctrine of the incarnation. But I also want to suggest to you that today, one of the things about the incarnation, and, and John, more than anything else, wants us to know literally that Jesus came in the flesh and that Jesus is the Son of Man, but also the Son of God. And we'll get to that in a moment. But you understand there's almost an element in this concept of the incarnation about Jesus that also tells us who we are to be as the body of Christ in this world. That Christianity is an incarnational reality. That Jesus came in the flesh so that you and I might be transformed and he literally can live within us and we now walk in the world in the presence of God, that we are the same incarnation, not at the same level of Jesus, of course, 
But you and I, Jesus was literally living, breathing, walking, talking God in the flesh, and you and I are to be the same. That you and I are to live in this world, and the presence of God, the reality of God within us is a part of who we are to be. That we are incarnation. That we are to be in our own flesh, transformed by the blood of Jesus, transformed by the Holy Spirit, filled with His presence, we are to be literally walking, talking miracles of the hand of God. Now that first sermon about incarnation has a lot of other pieces to it. And it really is significant in how we are saved and why Jesus needed to go and die on the cross. And next Sunday when we talk about Jesus being the Lamb of God, the physical sacrifice in this world, there's a whole lot more about sin entered the world through a man, sin needed to be resolved through a man. There's a great deal of more as we go at that. But today I want to move to the second sermon kind of quickly, and it is a sermon about the glory of God. And the two go together, that John understands that Jesus came in the flesh. He was the Son of Man, but He was also the Son of God. And we beheld His glory. I don't know that I understand the glory of God. I, I don't know that any of us are capable of understanding it in this world. In part, the Bible says, in this world we only see darkly through a glass. Someday we will see face to face the glory of God. My, my personal understanding about heaven is we're going to be around and all that foolishness. So I'm going to ask Paul what he meant about that. And I'm going to ask somebody. I think we're going to stand around and for about the first 100,000 years, we're just going to say, wow. Because we're going to experience the glory of God. But John says that when we saw Jesus, when Jesus was here in the world, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten on Father. Monday night I was at a, an associational meeting, <clears throat> and uh, Nate Adams, the executive director of the Illinois Baptist State Association, did a Bible study on the glory of God. And he basically started and, and made 10 statements about the glory of God from creation all the way to heaven. And I'd never really seen that. And I, I told him I was going to steal it and use it someplace, somewhere. And this is the someplace. I'm not going to get all 10 points, but basically the glory of God, every time God speaks, every time God acts, every time God moves, His glory, His presence, His power, who He is, His reality is revealed. The very first place it was revealed is when God spoke and creation began. And God's creation began to emanate, and it moved out. And the very first place that you and I can experience and see the glory of God is in creation itself. And to some extent, it's when we see a, a sunrise or a sunset, or we see the majesty of the mountains, or the, the immenseness of the oceans, or we, we see the, the miracle of human life, and we realize that that's a part of God revealing His glory. And by the way, Romans 1 says that's why no one is without excuse when it comes to standing before God, because God has revealed His glory in creation itself. And yet, even then, when you and I see the world that is around us, the fairest Lord Jesus of this heaven and this, you realize that there are galaxies by the millions, hundreds of thousands. We are, we are sending just a, a very small sense of the glory of God just in our creation and in our world. And God reveals His glory in that way. And throughout all of the Old Testament, God reveals His glory. He revealed His glory to Abraham. He revealed it to, to Moses up on the mountain when he came down and his face glowed because he'd been in the presence of God. 
He revealed it to the children of Israel in, in the Passover and, and in all of the Exodus and in the, the pillar by, by night and the pillar of smoke by day. That every time God intervened in the land of Israel's life, every time God worked, His glory was revealed. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 says that God spoke His glory, His presence, His power in various different ways. But finally, in these last days, He has spoken through His Son. And in Jesus Christ, we see the glory of God. In Jesus Christ, we see God and His presence and His glory. And, and we don't see all of it. We see just a fraction, just like in creation. But we begin to see, and, and John gives a testimony. In fact, one of the unique things in the Gospel of John is there are individuals who bear testimony and witness to the glory and the power and the majesty of God in the person of Jesus. He's going to tell us John the Baptist is going to bear witness. John the Apostle is going to bear witness. In fact, he's going to get at the end and he says, listen, the whole reason I wrote all this stuff is because I am a witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, just to, to kind of show you, there's at least seven, John the Apostle, John the Baptist, Nathaniel in just a few chapters is going to declare that Jesus is the Son of God. Peter, after a miracle of fishes, is going to declare that he is the Son of God. The blind man whose eyes are opened has that wonderful little conversation, and he declares that Jesus is the Son of God. Martha, prior to the resurrection, when she says, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And he says, I believe you are the Son of God. And then that wonderful statement when Thomas says, hey, I want to touch you. I want to touch the flesh. But when Jesus says, here I am, he falls to his knees and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, my, my Savior and my God. In other words, John gives testimony to the, the earthliness, but also to the Son of God. And he wants us to understand that both of those are a part of how Jesus is. And understand, I don't know how you get the flesh and the Son of God, the Son of Man together. In fact, basically when we try and understand it, it's 100% God and 100% man. And I'm an old math teacher and that doesn't hardly work. That just simply says it's a mystery. It's a miraculous event that Jesus could be in the world and be the Son of God and the Son of Man. And in Him, we could experience the glory of God. And we could see the glory of God. And then it's interesting that John, as he tells this story throughout the gospel, there are also seven signs. In fact, all of those declarations, for the most part, are attached to one of the miracles that John does, or that Jesus does while he's in the world, when he releases the power of God and it's, it's expressed, the glory of God. But there are seven signs. Uh, the, the wedding feast at Cana is the first sign, and the signs continue, and the, the last sign becomes the resurrection of Lazarus. And, and by the way, Lazarus as an individual literally becomes a walking, talking, living, breathing miracle. In fact, when they get ready and decide they need to get rid of Jesus, they also decide we've got to get rid of Lazarus too. Because Lazarus is a living expression of the glory of God in the world and the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Well, I don't know that I understand glory. And I do understand that someday we'll see him face to face. Someday we'll be in his presence. And I, I don't know, as wonderful as the songs that we sang today that enabled us to, to worship and to praise God and to sing his glory, I think even the songs that we sing in this world are going to pale in comparison to what we're going to do in heaven. 
I think everything we understand about Jesus in this world is going to pale to what we're ultimately going to find, the glory of God. But John says, I've been telling you about this guy, this word, this logos, this one that brings meaning to life, this one that holds the world together, this one is the source of life, he's light in the darkness, he's all of these things, and we saw him, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. The third sermon probably is a whole sermon just about the nature of truth. And he makes it very clear that Jesus was full of truth. In fact, later on, we're going to know that not only Jesus was full of truth, but he was truth. In fact, Henry Blackaby in Experiencing God makes that really clear. Truth is not a a philosophical concept. It's not a, a theoretical idea. It's a person. And if we don't understand and don't come to know that Jesus is the truth, then we've missed pretty much all. In fact, the last of the, by the way, we're on seven, seven witnesses, seven signs, there's seven I am's. The last of the statements that Jesus says where I am is in the upper room when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John makes it clear that right in the very beginning, this this word, there's something about truth. Now understand, if Jesus is the truth, he's truth about a lot of things. First of all, he's truth about us. He's the truth that tells us that we are sinners. The light shines in the darkness, and one of the things the light does is it reveals my darkness and your darkness, my sin and your sin. The reality is that Jesus coming in the flesh to live in the flesh, part of it is that then as he lived, his example proves to us that we are all sinners. In a church, there's a whole lot of comparison that goes on. Well, I'm better than him, or I'm better than her, and I know I'm not perfect, but I don't do like what they do, and I don't do what they do, and we spend a lot of time comparing ourselves to each other as a way to kind of justify who we are. Biblically, you know who the only person we're really allowed to compare ourselves to? It's Jesus. And when you and I compare ourselves to Jesus, I don't care who you are, you come up short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God revealed in Jesus. That's the reality that means that, that we all are sinners. And and the reality is that Jesus came into the world to be the truth about our sinfulness, about our, our nature, about our failure to be who he is and who he was. But then he's also the truth about the God that we can find that phrase, nobody's ever been in heaven and come down except Jesus. Jesus is the truth about God. I've been amazed over the years. There are all kinds of people who've got opinions about God. It's been a lot of years ago, but at least one time I got a call about two o'clock in the morning from some guys in a bar who said, you're a preacher. We got a question. We want to know. And they, they had some theological question about the nature of God they wanted to answer. And And there are a lot of folks with a lot of opinions. The only real opinion about who God is and the nature of God and the character of God and the spirit of God is Jesus Christ. And that's why his words are in some Bibles in red, because they stand out above all other words. And why his actions and his character and his deed and his life, it's why the gospels are so powerful, because they tell us who Jesus was, and by knowing Jesus, we know the Father. 
He is the truth about heaven. He's the truth about hell. He's the truth about sin. And he's the truth and the only truth about how you bridge the gap. And he becomes that truth. It's interesting that we have in all this, this world, we search for truth. In fact, it's on, on lots of old colleges and old universities that have been around for a while. They will have carved somewhere on some building, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or just the truth will set you free. It's interesting now they've pretty much tried to remove Jesus out of any context of higher education. And yet that's a statement that Jesus made that if you follow me, he said it to a bunch of his new disciples, if you follow me, then you will know the truth and that truth will set you free. And then Jesus upped it when he got into the upper room and he told his disciples that he was the truth. There's just something significant about Jesus and truth. And if you and I are going to follow him, obviously integrity and honesty and being straightforward and being honest about who we are. And in fact, there's kind of a reality that says, I don't believe that you can ever be truly saved. You can't be born again until you first of all acknowledge that you are a sinner. You're honest and truthful about your own sin. In that simple sinner's prayer, dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask you to forgive my sin. He is the truth about all of those things. Well, there's a, a final word, a final sermon, and it's about grace. I don't know that I know enough about grace. I, I don't know that, that grace is just amazing or marvelous. I, I think it's almost indescribable. But Jesus was full of grace. And then this phrase, grace upon grace. I, I don't, I, that just mystifies me. I don't even know that I understand it. it it's almost the suggestion is that if you, you find grace, and no matter how much grace you find, there's more grace. It's kind of from the Old Testament. There's one of the Psalms that just has the phrase in every single verse, His mercy endureth forever. His mercy endureth forever, over and over and over. His mercy endureth forever. Jesus Christ was full of grace. Grace is not a concept that it's easy for any of us to understand. It, it carries with it a, a, a sense of beauty. I mean, there's, there's just something beautiful about the nature of grace. Graceful in many of its respects, but, but it carries with it also a sense of welcome. Hospitality is a gracious activity. It's the idea of, of allowing people to be welcomed. And when Jesus is full of grace, there is something beautiful about everything that he says and does, but he has within him a spirit of invitation, a spirit of welcome that come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. That's the element of grace. But most of all, grace is mercy. It is unmerited favor. It is the thing that God can give to us that we cannot give to ourselves. It is the ability that even when we are sinners, that we can be accepted, not based on how good we are or what we've done, but simply by grace. I don't know that I know enough about grace, and I, I'm not sure that I can ever understand it, but Jesus Christ is filled with grace. That no matter how honest we are about our sin and how tragic and terrible our sin is, grace exists and Jesus is filled with it. And Jesus is the only means by where we experience the grace of God. And then I think this idea of, of Lord, I need grace today. 
I need you to forgive me. I need your mercy. I need your, I need your help. I need you today. I need you to be gracious. And he is. And then tomorrow when I feel like I've had all the grace I could ever have, there's still grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. There's really only two responses to all of these full sermons that could be and should be. One is that if you do not know Jesus Christ, then the truth is you are a sinner and desperately you need Him. And the good news of the gospel, the good news that John would share with you is that there is grace in Jesus Christ. And there is forgiveness and there is the possibility of experiencing the presence of God that Jesus Christ can forgive your sin and come and dwell within you and literally be a part of your life and your physical body in this physical world forever and ever and then the ultimate promise of the glory of God for all of eternity. Today, you could know Jesus Christ. And that's what John wants more than anything else. That's the main message. That's why he's introducing you to this person, Jesus Christ, because he knows that every one of us need Jesus. And Jesus is the only answer for us. Today, if you need Jesus Christ, this is the very best day that I know. Tomorrow might be okay, but I'm guaranteeing you today is a better day. Yesterday probably was the best day, but if you don't know Jesus, today is the day. But there's a second story here for all of us and for most of us who are already believers. And I know that's the majority of us this morning. And it is this idea of the incarnation. I think about Lazarus being that walking, talking, living, breathing example, expression of the grace of God and the truth of God and the glory of God all in that moment. And literally that's who you and I are to be. That we are to be, based on who Jesus is, we are to be living examples of the presence and the glory of God. And wherever you go in this physical body that you're hanging around in, for 70 years and 40 years, 80 years, if by reason of strength, and beyond that, probably some honoriness if you get past 80. But, but however many years God gives you to walk around in this physical body, this flesh that is yours, you understand you are not just to live in the flesh, you are to live indwelled by the glory and the presence and power of God. And as you live with every word that you say, with every action that you make or give, you are to be an expression of the truth of God. Not just in your honesty and integrity, but the truth of who Jesus is. And your life, my life, our example, our lifestyle in a sinful world, in darkness, is to be the example of what happens when the glory of God indwells someone and that our life ought to be the presence of God's truth and grace in the world and the way we treat people. That's why forgiveness is so absolutely critical. That's why you can't really expect to be forgiven if you don't forgive, because you and I are to be people filled with grace, filled with truth. Christians ought to be gracious. I don't know that some of you are ever going to be beautiful. We're not going to go there, but your lifestyle and your habit and your spirit and your attitude ought to be beautiful. It ought to be attractive. It ought to draw people to the one who dwells inside you. 
in the way that you live and the opinions that you share and the things that you post and how you live, it ought to be an expression of the truth about Jesus Christ, that you and I are to be living, walking, talking, breathing examples of the glory of God in the world, the truth of God that has come into the world, and the grace that has filled in Jesus Christ. And understand, Jesus came to save you, but then he came to indwell you so that you and I might be the incarnation of Jesus in the world. And as they're coming, you may be a school teacher. You understand that if you're a school teacher who knows Jesus Christ, you are God's representative incarnate in that school system so people will know the truth about Jesus and his grace and his glory. If you work in a factory, then you are God's agent in that factory, incarnate, that he dwells within you so people in that factory will know who Jesus Christ is. If you live in a neighborhood and you are a believer, then his intention is that you be the incarnation of Jesus Christ in that neighborhood. If you're a family member and you have family that do not know Jesus Christ, then you are, by God's intention, to be indwelled by the incarnate Savior that they might know what Jesus is like. You need to know Jesus. And then somehow, this Jesus who comes, who is unlike anyone who has ever come, intends to make us in such a way that people through us can see him. Grace and truth for all the world to see. And it begins in this moment. Thank you for joining us for this week's broadcast of Living Love. If this message has impacted you in any way, please let us know. If you would like to contact us, find out more about our church, or if you'd like to support our mission, visit ibcbenton.com. That's ibcbenton.com. Or give us a call at 618-439-3513.